0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me on. Definitely, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Um,
1: could you go ahead and give us just a short bio and some of the things you're interested in? Uh, sure. Yeah, so um, I guess my academic background is I got a PhD in philosophy um, from Rutgers University, but I left the academy um, and set up a research institute, leverage research. Um, we've um, Done a number of different uh, investigations over the course of time. More recently, we've been focusing on early stage science. Um, for myself, I've been really interested for a long time in knowledge um, and in the questions, I mean, sort of essentially everything having to do with that. So, I mean, I'm really interested in philosophy, skepticism, metaphysics, epistemology, like the whole nine yards. I'm really interested in science, really interested in uh, the sort of questions about what makes like really practical questions about what makes research programs work. Um, and then ultimately, I think a lot of my interest is driven by a desire to have the world be much better. Um, and I think uh, science and knowledge more generally have sort of been, you know, a double-edged sword where on one hand, things are Obviously much better in a whole bunch of ways because of technology that we've developed and science we've developed. Um, and then on the other hand, as humanity as a whole becomes more powerful, the chances that we might do something wrong and destroy ourselves or something really bad uh, goes up. And so then there's this question of how, you know, and, and so we, I think some people come out anti-technology or anti-science, I think, I think that's not the way to go. I think we need to understand things better. We need to have more ability to shape the world around us. But at the same time, we have to understand how to do that responsibly. And so it's, it's sort of like I think the, the macro picture is that I don't, I don't think many people are really satisfied with where we've gotten the world to thus far. Um, and so I think we need to push further. And I think that this means we're going to need more science, more knowledge, more technology, et cetera. Um, but we got to do it in a way that that makes sense.
0: Definitely. I, I really like that. And most people, you know, they don't come out of their PhDs and, and Rutgers, That's a great philosophy program, by the way. Um, and, and, and start a research organization. I think that's that's awesome. How did you kind of, you know, what was the
1: genesis of that idea? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, basically... Um, I, well, I wasn't ever wedded to doing research inside academia. I think there's a whole bunch of advantages there. I think it's the right path for a lot of people. Um, For myself, I'm essentially interested in whatever the most effective way is of acquiring knowledge and then helping to use that to try to improve humanity's position overall. Um, And the there's a a thing that I've come to appreciate over the course of time and thinking about academia and thinking about research outside academia, um, which is that there's, um, there's this thing that is simultaneously a great strength and potentially a great weakness of academic research, which has to do with timelines. See, academia has basically eternal timelines. I mean, you could think of it as descended from Plato and we're all looking at the forms. Okay, and then are you supposed to have looked at the forms by like Tuesday at nine? <laughs> no, the answer is that we're gonna take as long as is necessary in order to uh, you know, figure things out and make sure that we're actually getting the truth and so forth. And so I think like this is one, a lot of people you know, you, you know in and around Silicon Valley and so forth You'll hear a lot of people discounting ac- academia and they're like oh well you know there's so many things wrong and the right. professional incentives are out of whack and i mean there's truth to some of those things and, and we can certainly talk about that but i point out like academia is just has such a strong truth intention like they right. believe that they're going to get the truth and it doesn't matter if it takes 10 years or 50 years you know, you'll, you'll say, well, you know, there's all these ideas that people come up with that are initially rejected and later get accepted. Yeah. And, you know, the, I think the academy is sort of like, is like, well, you know, yes. And eventually absolutely everything will get in. Right. And <laughs> enough time. Okay. And, and so what that is, is that is a really high degree of confidence and confidence in a good thing um, that's occurring on this incredibly long timeline. And so I think you know, academia allows for individual research with these really long timelines and as a result is a really good fit for um, a lot of different types of research. For research where there's more a sense of uh, needing to, uh, more of a deadline, then right. I think that um, so it's it's research that involves either deadlines or research that involves groups organized in particular ways so another thing that's really good about academia is academic freedom with academic freedom you have people even though there are you know what's popular in the literature and you have to publish in this or that sort of sub-discourse there still is a lot of freedom you just have tons of people who are studying you know why the mongols retreated in this year instead of that year from whatever thing and then what's the practical application who knows Um, and i think that the sort of academic freedom, I mean, research freedom, I think, is is really, really good. The problem is that makes it hard to organize groups of people, at least in in certain disciplines, in certain contexts, you know, it's obviously academia is a huge thing. And so you don't want right. to, you know, really carefully study it before making any sort of like certain types of, of statements. But, um, but I found that for my own research, I was especially interested in whether it was possible in on relatively short timelines to figure things out that would end up impacting the world in some sort of positive way. And then that task seems really naturally approached with a group of people. And so then rather than trying to organize it inside of an academic context, which might have been possible, uh, but certainly I think would have taken longer, I basically decided to just put the thing together outside of academia. Um, and the w- while my own research originally was in philosophy and psychology, or sort of studying the universe and the mind and, and so forth, um, when uh, around, I guess, 2009, um, I had been thinking about different sorts of strategies for how would you actually go about trying to make the world better. And I realized, well, there's tons of different possible strategies and it'd be hard for me to explore them all. So why don't I get together a group of people and then we as a sort of team will try to explore tons of different things and figure out what might be useful for making the world better. And then because science and technology and knowledge have such a large impact, and those will be the main places we focus. That's sort of the the original genesis for leverage research, right? 2009, right. sort of, okay, we need something broad, 2010 planning, and then founded it in 2011.
0: Gotcha. Excellent. That That's really interesting. So, you know, you're, you're 10 years on. Um, yeah. And I want to talk about scientific freedom for a second. Have you ever read, uh, have you read Don Braben's book on scientific freedom? Um, No, I haven't. Okay. It's really interesting. So um, he paints this picture where pre 1970s, he's like 84 now. He ran a venture research program at BP and he's really sharp guy. It's really, I I really enjoyed uh, chatting with him. Mm -hmm. He, um, but he has this idea that pre 1970, you know, academics could get a little Mm -hmm. bit of money. Yep. And, you know, you could live on it and you could work on your wacky idea for 20 years, your Max Planck and yeah, yeah. thermodynamics, yes. yep. right? Uh, but he says, you know, something shifted around 1970 where suddenly it was all objective based. So mm-hmm. in- instead, like, you know, you have to go apply to get grants. You've got to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. Your review is much more onerous. And there's this yes. degradation and freedom. Yes. Um, and there is freedom like you said like you talked about a different kind of freedom where it's like you can go get a phd in english literature and go study hemingway and like (laughs) exactly how are they paying me to do this like it's it's uh,
1: exactly exactly
0: um so do you think academic research works less well than it used to uh it it, does it work better what's your feeling on that
1: so this is this is this is a great question um and i'm gonna say sort of Whatever remarks they make here, provisional. Cause I think I think the um the question of how the premier knowledge acquisition organ of society is functioning right. is is actually really crucial. And so <laughs> and, and then you know it's a hot topic and everybody wants to jump in and yeah. you know explain takes, it. right? yeah, yeah, hot takes. You know, try to <laughs> try to have like sort of warm takes. Um the so basically I do think that there's a lot of truth in what uh, in what you described in, in particular uh, so if you look at a graph of um, PhDs minted from 1900 through 1990 the graph basically like you know you've got something like 400 PhDs per year in 1900 and 400 in 1910 and then it like starts to go up a little bit right and then it goes back down and then goes up quite a bit. And so this is right after World War II and the GI Bill. Then goes back down again. And then you hit 1958, which, or maybe 59, and anyway, the launch of Sputnik. And yeah. as soon as you hit the launch of Sputnik, then it just like goes crazy. Criking. And it ends, by, I mean, so by the time you get to 1990, you have 40,000 PhDs per year compared to 400 and so in the space of like, glut. you know, we go from 1910 or so to 1990, that's 80 years, and then a 100x increase in the total number of PhDs minted per year. Now, it's very interesting, because I think one of the central, maybe articles of faith of the sort of modern research approach, is that the way to produce better research is to supply more funding. Gotcha. There's a really natural thought there, which you is just more money behind the problem. Well, it's it's you know, the funding goes directly to researchers, and so with more funding you have more researchers. More, stuff. Yeah. more researchers means more papers, the people sort out what stuff is yeah. good, and so it seems like pretty straightforward. Um, however, there's a thing that happens whenever any organization scales. This is uh, quite clear from lots of people's experience in startups, where when startups scale, the initial culture that existed when there were three people or four people or five people is really different than the culture when there's 10 or 20, is really different than the culture when there's 100 versus 10,000. And saying different in culture doesn't necessarily mean better or worse. It's better in some ways, worse in other ways. But the thing that ends up happening is that you end up using different mechanisms to coordinate the people so you can think that in addition to funding producing more researchers funding is also going to change the coordination mechanisms that are used to organize the researchers and then that could either be good or bad Um, as uh and so you know you talked about how there's you know people are now focusing it was more grant writing and you know, publisher perish faster. You know, right. more publication cycles, and in this sense, less academic freedom. You also have more, uh, uh, you know, more numerical metrics like impact factor right. um, in terms of looking at how Im- impactful is a paper. What's happening there is the attempt for the field to operate at scale. If we just have 20 of us, then, you know, I know almost all of them and you vouch for you right. know, her and it, we all we are everybody. checking yeah. by tons of different means. By the time we have 20,000, we don't all know each other and we don't all know people who know everyone else. And we still wanna maintain the quality of the research being done. So if we wanna maintain the quality of research being done, we need some method for this. And it has to be legible to all the relevant parties. So then this, this means that as you scale, you move to more externally legible mechanisms for assessing quality. And then that can change in a substantial way what sort of research gets done. So at okay. least, at least I will go so far to say that um, I mean, I, I do think the 1970 date is pretty good. A lot of research changed around, I think it was 74 with the National Research Act. So you get IRBs. There's, there's a bunch of factors that Uh, Sort of play in, but I think what's happening is the fields are becoming much larger, they do adopt these different mechanisms, and then there's some things that are good and some things that are bad, right? The things that are good, I think that it makes it, uh, especially if we make a distinction between so borrow from Kuhn. There's this really nice distinction, but for everybody, you know, anyone who hasn't read Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, highly recommended. Uh, Maybe we'll talk more about this in this conversation, but the um, but Kuhn uh, there's a standard view of science on which people are accumulating knowledge in a pretty linear way. Kuhn presents something that helps to put into context the idea we have that science radically changes people's views and that there are these massive shifts. The simple version is you start with pre-science, no one knows what's going on. Someone right. comes up with a theory and there's a bunch of practices and ways of approaching things. These are called a paradigm. Then inside the, everybody then acts inside the paradigm. This is called normal science. You are not Einstein. You are apply or you know, Newton gave you the paradigm. You are you are applying it and you apply it to everything. And then when you come across things that don't seem to fit, you try to make them fit. Some things end up not fitting when they don't fit, then those things become anomalies. Some of them get resolved, some don't. Um, and the ones that don't eventually you have people thinking about this and then people produce new theories and then the entire field shifts. And this is where you, this is actually the book where the term paradigm shift comes from. Nice. Uh, yeah, so that's that's just like a bit of background. I think it's a, it's a really good book. The, and if we think in terms of this difference between normal science and revolutionary science or normal science and pre-science, I think the scaled research and the way that academia has been doing it is best suited to normal science. So gotcha. if there is a well-established paradigm people know how to do the things you need something like regular ingenuity regular flashes of brilliance and so forth in the research then you can operate at scale uh, I think for example there's been a lot of work in you know chemistry and material science and so forth it's an example that I think is really good and I mean so certainly would love to see a bird's eye assessment of all the different fields and how they're doing. But right. my current impression is for, for instance, chemistry is doing well in that regard. But then if you try to scale things up, then there's a question of whether that actually helps you to cause paradigm shifts or to get fields going in the first place when the fields haven't really managed to finally get traction. Gotcha. So, and this is this is if I if I had, you know, was forced to guess right now, I'd say it did change. It became more professionalized. This came about as a result of scaling and various sorts of uh, structures and strictures applied as a result of that. And this was really good for normal science and um, less good for having academia be a house for uh, sort of rogue thinkers. I mean, there was this idea an eccentric right? And eccentric, you know, the right. terms derived, I think, from astronomy, but it's like the, the person is not thinking exactly in line with everyone else. Academia used to be the place for eccentrics. Um, there wasn't a lot of demand to go into academia, and it wasn't a profession. This is pre-professionalization, and so really it was right. a calling, and then you get a bunch of people with wacky ideas, and you don't have to believe any of the wacky ideas. That's fine, and every once in a while, they figure out how to split atoms um, and get, you know, nuclear right. chain reactions and the ability to destroy entire cities. And it's like, OK, wait a second. <laughs> There's something here. Exactly. That's, anyway, those are some thoughts.
0: Gotcha. So, so maybe, so I guess what you're saying, mm-hmm. tell me if I'm wrong, it's something like we've gotten very good at doing incremental things where mm-hmm. we've got like this framework, mm-hmm. we're going to go explore this frontier. We're going to go like yes. one yes. by one, go through mm-hmm. each place. Um but we've gotten l- less good at, okay, we need to find a new frontier.
1: If well, it's, it's an interesting question when you say whether we've gotten less good at it, because yeah. one thing that a lot of discussions about science frequently are discussions of academic science. Right. Um, and the, but... if we go back and look at the history of science, science was not an endeavor that was confined to the academy or the academies and scientific academies like in the 1800s. Um, If you go back further, you have people doing science sort of, you know, not necessarily in any sort of institutional context. If you look at the early history of electricity, which we've been studying at Leverage for a little while, um, you find that there's a lot of research that's being done that's not inside academia. Flash forward to today, well, AI is certainly super important and the most important research being done in AI isn't being done in academia. It's being done by commercial entities. You could think of this as industry. So I think that it's important to understand academia because like I said, it's like the sort of premier knowledge organ of our society. But the idea that academic science is science, um, I think, neglects the fact that you have a lot of things going on in industry and sort of outside uh, by independent researchers. Gotcha.
0: So, Which
1: but then, so in answer to your question, you know, have we gotten worse? This is a really good. This is a really good question. Um, I think that when people, I mean, first of all there haven't been a lot of really thorough examinations of the different fields inside of academia. How much progress are they making? Like we're all familiar with the replication crisis in psychology, and then which is extended elsewhere where you have a lot of people try, you're supposed to replicate, You know the studies are supposed to uh, replicate or the results replicate. um, And the answer is frequently they don't. Uh Uh-oh, maybe there's a problem. That doesn't exactly answer the question of how much progress is being made in each area. And so, I think both for academic research and non-academic research, there's a really interesting question of how much progress is being made. Um, in fact, you know, I was speaking to a friend and you know, he put it, I think, really nicely. He said, you know, for a while we had this narrative of singularity um, and then now we're in the narrative of stagnation and everyone's talking about how things aren't as good as they were and right. you know, civilizations collapsing and so forth. Um, well, why don't we actually figure out how much progress is being made? And I think that's a great idea. And I think we should do that. So I think, I think the, it's possible to do analyses of certain sectors if we understand them quite well. Uh, but getting a full picture is something I'm really excited to see happen.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, I think getting a better way mm-hmm. to measure and understand where we are is definitely helpful in understanding how to accelerate, right? Like you have to know where you are before you can.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's right. interesting because I was, I was on a, another podcast recently and we were talking about AI and there was this interesting question, how fast is progress in AI really going there? You know, there's some article in science pretty recently that said, well, it looks like a lot of the new algorithms aren't beating benchmarks from 2009, and it's very everybody you know who's trying to support their research needs to have a narrative of victory, and so you can't raise money on right. this doesn't work, um, doesn't and so work. so uh, and so then you have re- and It's very easy in AI to develop new metrics and new ways of measuring whether you're getting better. So then there's a question of are we really getting better? I think it's it's quite clear that there are advances being made in AI. GPT three is a good example, um, but uh, in terms of how the field's doing overall, I, I I don't know, and I would really like to know.
0: Right, that, that that's uh, really well put. It's Yes, it's really interesting. And, and I do wonder, I, I do wonder to so go out of psychology and the replication crisis. sure, I, I do have this worry that the reason why we're all talking about psychology, it's because it's easy for everyone to look at and understand. You can read through the study, you can look at the statistics, and it's mm-hmm. very legible. It's very understood, like, wow, this is not... Yep. Something's wrong here. But yes, then yes. like, you know, super string theory, you know, I have no way to evaluate whether this paper is right. had any bearing on reality at all. And, and so uh, I that is somewhat worrisome to me. But, and that goes to back to your point about yes. AI, where it's like,
1: it, it's just difficult to tell. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I think that it would be really beneficial to see a sort of field by field or domain by domain analysis of, what is the progress that's being made? You know, you could turn this into an examination of bottlenecks. This is something I'm quite interested in, um, where it's like, how much progress is being made? What are the actual barriers? What are the different ways to approach it? Which things look the most promising? Um, I think having a more bird's eye view on the entire scientific process is a really good idea. Might help things go faster um, and just sort of generally be clarifying.
0: Gotcha. Oh, and I want to talk about bottlenecks and examination of bottlenecks for a little (laughs) bit. Um, Is that something you've looked into, you know, and how, what does that look like? Is it going out and just asking researchers, you know, what are the biggest bottlenecks? Is it like reading papers? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, so this is, um, this is interesting. Uh, Um, I recently have been, um, in a number of conversations where it's, it seemed, uh, quite important to figure out how we can tell how much progress is really being made like as you you know what are the bottlenecks and it's interesting because some fields seem more self-reflective and some seem less so i mean i spoke to one person who claimed that their field was not self-reflective um this is your know, one opinion but it's mean, very nothing... reflective like uh, well person, this I... well but, but so part of it part of this was that um, I think that it takes a special uh, type of mentality to approach the idea of what's happening in the field overall. And this is for a couple of reasons. So the first is the there's an insider-outsider distinction. Okay. If you're fully in the field and you've absorbed all the assumptions, then the answer is almost certainly things are going great, OK? Um, and if you're on the outside, then you aren't privy to lots of conversations you don't really know a lot about what's going on it's really maybe you're bitter that you're not on the inside and you know you're like well they you know i think they're bad and um and so i think from the outside it's it's quite easy to not be as informed that's not to say insiders can't see past assumptions and outsiders can't pierce the veil i'm i'm it's i'm talking sort of generally the sort of things that'll happen um but like ideally what you'd want is someone who both had an insider understanding but could take a broader perspective on it also the um in a lot of cases the way fields work even though the fields are studying different objects and, and and function differently as a result of that there are some things that are similar from field to field like it's all research there's there's certain very important sort of broad uh general truths and you can learn a bunch about what's happening in one field by looking at the right level of abstraction at what's happening in other fields and so it's also useful to have a sort of generalist perspective and then bottleneck analyses are by their nature abstract so you want to think abstractly but If, you know, if it's just abstract, then like frequently the the reason something's not moving forward has to do with a lot of sort of concrete on the ground details. And so I really think like the thing you want is like, you know, insider, outsider, abstract, concrete, generalist or whatever. And then not everyone should be doing that. Some people should just be pushing the things forward as directly as possible. If everyone goes meta, that itself is a problem and we should go meta on that. Um, but so uh, but so then I, I um, have been looking around and trying to find researchers who are especially interested in this sort of bottleneck analysis. There's like a mentality where the person like sort of you ask why, why, why? Like one thing about bottlenecks is if you say, oh, you know, here's the problem with the field. The incentives are set up wrong. <laughs> it's like, OK, cool. Great. Let's assume that's true. Right. Why are the incentives set up wrong? Right. Yeah. Because... And then there you can say well incentives are the bottleneck but what's the bottleneck to that and so you can push it back and so then there's a, some people will have this habit of thought where they just keep pushing the sort of why question. in fact I mean I didn't think of this but you know we're here on a podcast so I'll say you know for anybody who does thinks about fields in terms of bottlenecks and feels like they uh, you know have something really good to say on, uh, particular fields, or they know people who they'd recommend, feel free to reach out. Um, I'm sort of trying to collect, a, sort of figure out who the people are so that we can, uh, you know, maybe there's some way to join forces or something like that.
0: Definitely. Yeah, we've had someone who's actually discussed the ball in kind of field. I'll, I'll forward you his email and give you an introduction. Um, it's an it's but it's an international relation. So uh, it, it oh, see, just...
1: no, but that that's, that's super interesting. See, I think one of the things is that when when people think about science and they think about bottlenecks they're frequently thinking about hard science right. and i think hard science is super important but um i mean some of the places where the bottlenecks will be the most pronounced are the fields that aren't really functioning properly right and so and then the soft science people will want to say no our field is functioning fine thank you and the hard science people will say well you know it's not really real science over there <laughs> is it Okay. But the, th- the thing I think we should agree on is that the soft sciences haven't yet given us the ability to affect reality in the way that the hard sciences have. Exactly. And insofar as we're studying the things like that is much more of what the goal should be. So then the question is, well, why can't we do that?
0: Definitely, definitely. Yeah. That, that's really well put. That, that's the right way to think about it. It's, you know, looking at it, it's like, you know, what utility have we gotten in, in real terms in the, in the world that how things have been affected. Um, so I, I wanted to move on and actually ask you one of these questions I've got here. This has been a great oh, conversation yeah. so far. <laughs> um, in, in one of, uh, the essays you talked about, not the fact that knowledge can d- decay. Um,
1: all right. This and, is my, my medium essays. Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and have you ever heard of WHR Rivers essay, um, disappearance of useful arts?
1: Um I haven't actually um you should send me a note on that I will, check I will. that sounds great
0: it's really good so he describes like how um cultures can lose fundamental knowledge so he gives an example of like yes. Inuit uh, you know, there's a pandemic in, in Greenland and um, it, it killed off all the elders and they lost the ability to build seafaring kayaks for like a hundred years. Until, yep. but, and so um, it, it seems like things like this can happen. Yes. And have we kind of gotten away from that because of information technology or is that still a real problem?
1: Oh, uh, this is this is such a good question. The The answer is it's still a real problem. Interesting. Um, oh yeah, it's, uh, I think the, Well, one thing that's very interesting to think about in these sorts of contexts is in a lot of cases, the things you would use to tell whether you're maintaining the knowledge are themselves the things that are decaying. And so, and so it's like, you know, imagine that you have, you know, the elders of whatever group have some special knowledge, but the next generation doesn't seem to care and the elders die no one is left who recognizes exactly. that there was actually this knowledge. And so <laughs> there's, there's this way in which, you know, as the sort of mind's eye of society closes to certain things, it doesn't realize that that's happening. And this is a, in a way, a sort of terrifying prospect because there's like, what, what are we losing? And right. um, then, but on the other hand, I do think people frequently emphasize the decay aspect of it a little too much. Like the example gotcha. you gave has a pandemic um, and that's a sort of surprise event that right. was a deliberate shock to their system of knowledge. But in a lot of cases, you don't have exactly that. And so then it, it's like really puzzling, Like. Well, if we know the knowledge is important, why don't we keep it? Right. And if we you know the younger generation doesn't care as much, why don't we teach them to care That's a point of the education system? Exactly. Uh, and so I think there's a, a sort of pretty interesting puzzle on the topic of why knowledge would ever decay in the relevant ways. I mean, if, if anything, we should be trying to preserve it, right? And so it's right. like how, um, but I think when you dig into it, you'll find that the uh, frequently what's happening is not just a decline, but rather a change. Uh, And the change, and and it's not just a clever reframing. I do think like changes are made out of like some things decline and some things improve usually unless it's just a straightforward Pareto improvement. Um, And, but I think in a lot of cases you have the old gets replaced by the new in a way that preserves some things and not others. So let me get an example. So uh, okay. uh, a nice example is the question about whether we can build the Saturn V rockets. Um, so oh, this is great. Yeah, so moon landing, you know, we used Saturn V rockets. Um, uh, or sorry, the Saturn V was the thing we used the, um, what's the name of the rocket? How am I, um, blank- am I blanking on this? Um, no, maybe it is the Saturn V rockets. No, yeah, uh, yeah okay, okay. Um, anyway, the um, these things were super impressive. Um, and right now, it's this weird, so it's just, you know, true fact, if somebody tasked humanity with building one of the Saturn V rockets, yeah. um, uh, we would not really be able to. Um, oh, really? Okay, that's but that's not, well, it's not because, general decay everything is being lost and then the sun sets on western right. civilization exactly. okay, that's not what's happening there's a couple things that's happened a couple things that are happening the first thing is that um technology moved on um, the saturn 5 was um hand welded oh wow yeah Jesus. okay you, Jesus, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. crazy if you look into the technical specs on this thing God. it's just yeah no no it's it's crazy um and the um and the the rocket um and and then we just don't have as many welders and so when they, they at a certain point i think maybe it was the us government like looked into okay can we rebuild these and yeah. well most of the people who had worked on them had retired and we developed a whole bunch of like new types of welding in the meantime and so people weren't trained in the original welding techniques. And so there were a bunch of people who were willing to come out of retirement to help rebuild them. But I mean, that was uh, some number of years ago. And so unfortunately, there are many fewer people who actually know how to hand build one of these. Okay, so that's that's one of the reasons we can't do it. But then on the other hand, we, I mean, you know, when they did the, the relevant study, they went through and said, okay, is there a modern way to build this rocket that's not just handcrafted? And the answer is yes. So they made updated designs. So we have better designs. And so there's a sense in which we wouldn't want to build the original rocket. Right. We've got a better one. So that, 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 one's, that one's not a decline fa- There's a hand welding is lost yeah. or a, a bunch of the welding skill is lost. And then there's a question of what that allows you to do. That doesn't really hurt us on rockets. Because we've got more advanced techniques. Right. Then there's another dimension, though, which is that um, it's just not a national priority. it, it right. was a national priority, when things are national priorities, they get tons of extra funding. But then when the um, but then when the priorities change, the funding changes, and so it's possible to reboot a rocket program that would let us build rockets the upgraded versions of the originals right. and it would cost we got the numbers are in the medium post but tens of millions or 100 million dollars some, yeah. some large number of millions of dollars to reboot the um to reboot the program and then you know a lot of money per rocket that you'd like produced and then it gotcha. would take a while to reboot so there's i mean an interesting another example that people don't know about um is this um this uh, thing called Fogbank. Are you familiar with Fogbank? Oh, what's this? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look on Wikipedia, um, you know it says, and this is it's, it's all caps. Fogbank. Um, nice. Fogbank is a code name given to a material used in nuclear weapons. Fogbank's precise nature is classified. In the oh, words nice. of former Oak Ridge general manager Dennis Ruddy, "quote The material is classified." its composition is classified, its use in the weapon is classified, and the process itself is classified. Is classified. Cool. So we don't know what Fog Bank is. Yeah. But we do know that they forgot how to manufacture it. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, you might think, and, and so each of these cases, I think, teaches us something really important because for people who are in the mentality that we can't lose knowledge, just look at some of the cases, like you can Which lose knowledge. Yeah. With okay. good information technology, relatively. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, but then when you dig, and then but then for, if you want to get past the declinist, you know, eclipse of civilization right. mentality, then you want to look at why does, um, like what exactly is happening? Um, and as far, from what I remember on the, the Fog Bank case, they had the original, like, it's not like they threw away the chemical formula in its classified file hidden somewhere. Right. Okay, They had it, but when they went to manufacture it, it didn't work. You were like, well, why would it not work? Well, the answer is, over time, your manufacturing processes improve. As they improve, they remove impurities. And so then if your original formula worked because of impurities that you didn't oh, understand, wow. then as your manufacturing gets better, you may actually lose the capacity to, to manufacture things. And so when they realized this, they were like, Oh no. And then they went back and spent a lot of time and money, much more time and money than they were thinking. And then they, we got the ability to make it. So we're fine. We, we refigured it out. Things are fine. Okay. But, but then, I mean, this, this is the sort of dynamic. And when you talk about, um, and one thing I'm super interested in is research programs yeah. um, and how knowledge is created and preserved and, and so forth. the, idea that some of our manufacturing processes rely on impurities or sort of anomaly things we don't exactly understand right um and as a result over the course of time conditions change and the things stop working almost no one's thinking about this and then people really aren't thinking so if we you know go back to the uh conversation about academia well if you imagine that original academia has a bunch of impurities in the way that science is being done. Right. Okay. Like, are you selecting the best candidates? Like, not nearly as rigorously. Are you testing them? No. Are you measuring the impact factor? And so there's a lot more variation. You scale up the process. Maybe in the course of scaling up the process, you refine the process so that you can pick exactly a particular type of candidate. But maybe that was maybe maybe the thing worked because you had many different types of candidates, right. um, And so you can think about the entire process of sort of scaling up an institutionalization of science as a manufacturing process. Like we are trying to manufacture bricks of scientific right. knowledge or blocks of scientific knowledge, and if you change the manufacturing process, you're like, well, wouldn't it be better? Like, so take the replication crisis in psychology. Yeah. Some people have proposed that we should maybe lower the p-value. So the, the threshold for significance. So you know, if your study comes back, P greater than 0.05, bad, lower than 0.05, statistically significant, Woohoo! good job. Um, the some people have said, well, because the studies aren't replicating, we should raise the threshold bubble, which means lowering it down, and maybe we lower it to something like 0.01. That's a that's a that's an interesting suggestion and maybe it would work. Um, But do we really understand this manufacturing process (laughs) as you make, I mean, take something like pre-registration. Pre-registration is another example where it seems like an obviously good idea. If we're worried about scientists fiddling with the numbers so that they always get a positive result because they need to publish, then why not just have them pre-register so they can't fiddle with the numbers? Well, I mean, it really depends on it's something like you can say, well, why don't we just increase the, you know, the, the standards? Well, increasing the standards increases the cost per unit of production, which may increase the degree to which people route around in clever ways the requirements for the unit of production. Maybe if you increase the requirements and don't decrease the pace of publication required, maybe the thing you're doing is you're incentivizing people to figure out how to game the system, whether consciously or not, right. in more and more clever ways. And so that, the, this is, this is an, an example where it's, I, I think one of the good lenses to use in thinking about knowledge production is to think of it as a manufacturing process. And then you wanna understand what do you know about it and what do you not? Do you really wanna switch to the new set of machines? Well, you haven't right. tested the new set of machines. Well, they're just the same as the old set of machines, according to test X and test Y. Right. Well, what do we really know about test X and test Y? Um, and so forth. And this doesn't mean you don't change anything because I do think you can make changes that yeah. radically improve our ability to make progress in developing knowledge. But I think what the, you know, so we should be careful. Definitely. It, it almost feels like
0: you're. it's very, uh, have you read Seeing Like a State?
1: Um, like, I have not. I'm familiar with the general idea of
0: legibility though gotcha. Yeah, so it almost feels like that a, a little bit in that, you know, it's like yes. this process it works since we don't know exactly how it works, so should we we should probably be careful about how we approach it and and not just go blow it all up and
1: you know. Yes. And and I think I mean I think it's it's quite important to resist conservatism in the sort of approach for like policies in this way. So I think the gotcha. know we don't know how it works so don't change it is really good advice and that needs to be paired with the fact that we do need to make more progress and we do need to fix things um and so i'm uh in favor of um i mean the main thing i would use the you know the seeing like a state you know careful yeah. if you, you go through and you remove all the underbrush from the forest to make it cleaner and then the forest right, then, dies yeah exactly. right um the um what you want to have is you want to have the principles in which you're crafting your research programs to to make a lot of sense um this it's sort of like uh, there's a high modernist tendency. It's like, well, I know. Right. Let's make it into a geometrical shape. Like, let's oh, make it a grid. Be great. Yeah. Um, Brasilia, the, it's be awesome. <laughs> no, exactly. I was thinking of Brasilia and the. Um, I think I think it's part of what modernism is about. In a way, is about not trying to rely on the past so that we can do new things and so that we can create what we are. And I think that that's good. And I think we can partially create what we are. <laughs> um, and also, I think we need to understand what we are. And so if we try to lay everything out in a grid and human nature and the research process mish- m- mismatch the grid, then something bad will happen and your studies won't replicate. Right. That
0: it, that makes a lot of sense. I, re- I, really, I really like that. Um, and going off of that, you know, what do most like lay people misunderstand about scientists? And what do scientists themselves kind of misunderstand about science, like the process? I we mentioned a couple of things. Are there are any other really big things that yeah, that's are worth a, that's mentioning?
1: A, that's a really good question. Um well. Hmm. I think that it's it's an interesting question what the public doesn't understand about science because there's a there's a sort of counterintuitive thing and i really want to write some things about this because there's a bunch oh, yeah. of like counterintuitive thoughts here i haven't gotten to it yet but i really want to do this where a lot of what people learn is from movies and television shows and so forth right um I was, you know some saw some source claiming that most of what people know about our legal system in the united states <laughs> is actually oh, from TV shows and movies and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, but I also think that even though movies and, and television shows and, and and so on frequently are unrealistic or frequently have some premise like there are dragons um, and so <laughs> forth, The um, in order to have the thing be realistic, the writers and authors and creators frequently have to try, they're trying to make the thing as true to life in at least a number of different regards. Right. And so I think there's this really interesting question about, you know, it's it like, so take, you know, my, my favorite example here is, um, the degree to which, uh, academic, uh, the degree to which academic scientific funding is backed by the military. Gotcha. If that's not a thing that's part of normal every, you know, discourse right. among, sort of, you know, when people are like, let's make more progress and so forth they're they're not normally thinking about that right. but as soon as you step over to hollywood then you know the scene right the scientist is like well th- but this is amazing like if you <laughs> and then the you know the military comes in and they're like it, you know here we'd here like we to see what you're working on professor yeah, exactly. we've been funding your research for many years and you know the professor's like i had no i i, I didn't you know only wanted my inventions to be used for good not <laughs> right. for, not yeah. to harm people and so forth um uh and then it's an interesting question, actually, how much of the funding ultimately originates from the military and sort of who understands better what's happening there. But I'll sort of bracket that. Let me answer. Um, I'll leave that as, you know, I, I feel like there's more to be said in that area. Yeah. Um, on the topic of what scientists don't understand. It's a good question, scientists. It's like a big category. I'd want to yeah. talk to a lot of scientists to know. But I would say among the people who frequently comment on science, on science including many scientists, there's a thing that I think is really not understood, which is the way that science interacts with authority. Okay, interesting. The, now, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of things to be said. I mean, right now, Leverage is doing a lot of research on early stage science. I feel like people nowadays have this image of science as, um, you know, you've got lab coats, you've got large hadron colliders, you've got randomized control right. trials. That's not how science actually got started, of course. Those things are all characteristic of late stage science. Right, well, what, what's early stage science like? Well, I don't know, people are poking stuff and seeing like what right. happens when you mix chemicals together and so forth. And I think, um, so I think at least one thing that's, that's quite misunderstood in the area is even though people have this sense that science in, you know, even though they have the sense of science in its early stages, yeah. They're frequently when they talk about it, they're then trying to apply standards that are or, or like patterns that uh, are more pertinent, more uh, sort of more uh, fitting for late stage science. Um, but one thing that I think is importantly different is the role of authority. And so I, I'm, I mean, I've been thinking about this, I don't really feel like I have sort of finished thoughts. But one thing that at least certainly seems different is that at the beginning of, you know, you go back to early electricity and early magnetism, yeah. or looking at, you know, early astronomy and so forth, um, The it's much harder to use the science authoritatively. But when you get to the later stages in the scientific process, then science comes to be used authoritatively. And so I, th- I think there's a gotcha. sort of, well, there's this, there's this strange thing that happens where people will say, Science is about always questioning, you know, never accept on the basis of authority, new frontiers, challenge your assumptions. In fact, I saw there was a some, some, you know, noted blog, media outlets blog or science blog or something had both the tagline that was something like always questioning and then an article (laughs) which is like, Can you people stop questioning the science on the topic of the (laughs) pandemic? And it's like, well how, do you, well, how do we square the fact that on one hand, science has this ethos of continuing to explore challenging questioning. And on the other hand, at a certain point, you want people to just accept the science because it's solid and we know what we're talking about. Right. Um, and so I think that the, the fact is that science is now very, very frequently used authoritatively in society when governments make decisions, they want to make them, you know, at least, you know, many sort of more modern governments are going to want to uh, justify things by reference to science. It's like when the U.S. decides to go into lockdown, the pandemic, it's on the basis of a study, an academic study coming out of a very prestigious university. And so it's, you know, over the last, you know, while, we've been trending more and more away from really trusting individual decision makers and instead wanting impersonal mechanisms to verify so you don't want gotcha. you know the dictator saying that it's their will you want you know like an impartial you know scientific yeah. good you know assessment of the facts so you make good decisions but then in a lot so what's happened is there's come to be a very large demand for authoritative statements from science and then, in some cases, the supply is there, like in a bunch of places in physics, we do know the answers yeah. well enough to comment authoritatively. But in a bunch of places, it's and this is where it gets really tricky. Um, and this is actually, I think, one of the uh, sort of like rift points. I don't know. This is one of the places where there are clashes in uh, our society now over science and government right. and authority you don't want the government just making decisions arbitrarily or on somebody's whim. You want it to be well justified. Right. Um, On the other hand, you don't want anyone saying that the science is good enough until it's actually good enough. And then a lot of the problems are actually really hard and we're not actually at the point where we have totally solid answers. And so then what do you do with this? You can have, you can, disclaim authority and have you know mark everything preliminary um and then uh not you know and resist attempts by government officials to rely on on your work in any sort of official decision making but that that seems like that's that's like i don't know is it like it seems sort of Rebellion oriented. I don't know if the academics really all want to you know, declare it's time (laughs) to resist the authorities. And I think they want to look at uh, the forms. Yeah, exactly, Uh, exactly. um, Whereas on the other hand, you don't. I mean, we do want our our governments to make good decisions and base them on the best available information. And so I think that and so to put it concisely, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about science is that it's being called on to play an authoritative role in a way that sometimes it's able to do and sometimes it's less clear. And then this is the sort of thing that can produce a very notable distortion inside of different fields. And then there's an object level question of, well, is that really happening to what degree and what do we do about it? Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Also wonder too, it, it sounds like, you know, these, the knowledge making organizations, you know, like the <laughs> yeah. universities, that gives them a lot of power if the government goes to them and it says, what policy should we do? You know, I'm a yeah, staffer yeah. and I have no time to figure out what to write the That's law. Right. Professor, help me. And it sounds like, you know, power corrupts and, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, should we be concerned about that at all? And, yeah, I, I, I don't have any good alternatives, you know what I mean? So well, so, I mean,
1: this is this is one thing where I, I think it's, um, in general, I think, uh, in some cases, a system is so bad that it should be torn down without any expected <laughs> replacement, okay? But that's usually not what's happening, and people right. usually aren't thinking clearly about what happens if some reigning authority gotcha. is removed without a replacement, um, the and so I, I think that in terms of you, know, you said should we be concerned about it I think people should be concerned about the authoritative use of scientific research in decisions but I think that what this means is we need like and this and this is an area where I think that uh, independent thinkers uh, have a, a sort of role to play um, we need Concrete positive alternatives, and I mean, you can, you can, you know, it's well. Maybe we should just stop relying on science. Terrible idea. Yeah. Well, should we, should we stop relying on, um, stop relying on science until it's it's ready? Well, it seems like there's got to be some evidential value that can be extracted from the not like from what we've done so far. Right. Um, okay. Well, what about adding epistemic tags to everything so that we keep the public informed. It's like, well, sure. Except that you you have to make the thing understandable and some right. obscure system using epistemic tags and probabilities is, is not going to be understood. Um, and, and there's all these sorts of problems, high modernist problems where you're like, well, why don't we just have everyone do Bayesian updating? It's like, right. well, <laughs> really hard. Also, there are weird, subtle problems that occur right. if you really try to run with one or another proposal. Um, so, but I, I do think that this, this is an area that deserves to have more light shined on it. Like right. why, um, there, there's all sorts of things that are really interesting and suggestive. Um, one is figuring out how we can assess the quality of research occurring in different places. I mean, if quality yeah. of research affects amount of funding, this is a political question. Right. And do we trust academia to assess itself? Do we trust, like, but then who do we trust to, do we trust the government to assess academia that the academia is providing? I mean, it is just, you know, now now we're at the who watches the, you know, right, watchman exactly. you know, challenge. Um, and this is where I think that there's a place for social philosophy, um, this, you know, uh, uh, abstract sort of thought that on the topic of what we should do. And then, um, and then I think that, I mean, getting that stuff right is also super hard. I mean, it's easy enough to come up with a, you know, simple idea for how to solve the problem that would be terrible if implemented. Right. Exactly.
0: That really well put. Well, Jeff, I, I really wanted to thank you for coming on and we'll have sure. to have you on again. Um, do you have any parting oh, wow. thoughts? Already at the, already at the I end. know, <laughs> it Well, um, and where mm-hmm. can people find you? So, you know, parting Oh, thoughts.
1: yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, you know, so I work at Leverage Research, LeverageResearch.org. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I guess there'll be info, my Twitter bio um, will be put up on, I guess, the podcast info. Definitely. And then um, I have a few essays up on Medium, um, and uh, ideally, you know, hopefully, I'll, I'll write some more things soon. Um, let's see. Is there any last comment? Let me just let me think for a moment about, yeah, absolutely. What, about what we've talked about. Okay, I, I think there's an opportunity that hasn't fully been crystallized but i think would be really very valuable which is some attempt and since it involves enough people need to be a, a somewhat organized attempt to try to synthesize and organize information on the topic of coordination like a lot of the things we've been talking about are coordination related things and in particular coordination and knowledge what happens when you increase the number of people trying to number of researchers 100x what you know what happens you change the coordination mechanism maybe you change the research um, we you know looking at i mean needing authoritative statements from government that's frequently for the sake of coordinating populations in general um, and so there's like another relation there uh, i think the specific uh, design of research programs frequently relates to this. And then something we didn't talk about that much except you know, startups and scaling is that recently, I think a whole lot of knowledge has come into existence for the first time, I think it's the first time, on the topic of what a, a certain type of coordination experiment, AKA a startup is like. Yeah. I mean, you have tons and tons of attempts to work together in a small scale way that eventually expands and then provides a stable product or service to society. And if you look through all of the knowledge on the topic from Paul Graham and Peter Thiel and so forth, tons of it is knowledge of coordination and how coordination works. I think there should be at least some, there should be more movement in the direction of bringing together and trying to organize all of this information, because I think there's now a lot of information available that will help us to understand how can we effectively organize people for research, and uh, and maybe there are larger sort of consequences that could be drawn. So I think I think that's a thing. There's a lot of people who I like when I you know meet independent thinkers. A lot of them are really focused in some way on this question of coordination, like different yeah. facets of the gem. Um, and I think it would be great if that knowledge started to come together.
0: That's excellent. I, I love that thought. Well, thank you, Jeff. We'll definitely have to. Have Absolutely. You thanks.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Time yeah, anyway really flew. <laughs> it's great. Appreciate All right. It. See you.
0: Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis, and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.